Welcome to the Beacon broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com, beaconbaptist.com. The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. We are studying Christ's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And if you're a regular listener to the Beacon Broadcast, of course, you already know that. And you may also know that this prayer is generally divided into three sections. First, Christ prays for himself. Second, Christ prays for his apostles. And third, Christ prays for all his people. And we have studied the petitions that Christ made for himself in verses 1 through 5, and we have entered into the second section where Christ is praying for his apostles. But I must first insert this clarification, and that is many of the things that Christ prays for his apostles are actually things that he's also praying for all of his people. And that is even indicated in that transition verse, verse 20, where we read that he is praying for all of his people and not just his apostles because here's what it says, verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, that is the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now some have said that the second section is not Christ praying just for his apostles, but those he's praying for those who are currently his believers, uh, his followers, and those who believe on him at the time when he's making this prayer, and then verses 20 and following are his petitions that relate to all of his people down through all, all time, and including the many millions who will believe on him before the second coming. And that's another way of looking at it. So it's, it's clear from verse 20 that the things, at least some of the things, if not most of the things, that he's praying for his apostles— in verses 6 through 19, he's also praying for all who believe in him. And as he says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So it's a little hard to, to uh, nail this down neatly. We can say verses 1 through 5, Christ prays for himself. No, no difficulty with that one. Number two, verses 6 through 19, Christ prays for his apostles. Well, or does he pray for his disciples? That's another way of putting it. In other words, the ones who are living at the time he prays. And then number three, verses 20 through the end of the chapter, uh, verses 20 through 26, Christ prays for all of his people. Well, whatever it is. I just want to point that out, and we will continue our examination of the second section where Christ prays for his disciples. But I pause to welcome you to this weekend edition of the Beacon Broadcast. You are listening to it, no doubt, either on Saturday, February 10, or Sunday, February 11, 
Thank you for joining us. And thank you for helping us with the financial cost of maintaining this program on the station. Back to verse 6. Christ says, he's praying to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, at some point, I think I described verse 6 as Christ's description of a Christian. How does Christ describe a Christian? We have all kinds of ideas about what defines, what describes a Christian. A Christian is fill-in-the-blank. A Christian is one who has been born again. True. Uh, A Christian is one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. True. A Christian is one who is a follower of Christ. True. A Christian is one who identifies himself as a Christian because he believes in that the God of the Bible is the one true and living God, and that the Bible is his revelation to man. And that's true. Uh, A Christian is someone who lives in a Christian country and grows up in a Christian home, perhaps, and attends a Christian church, and therefore he's a Christian, and so forth. We go through all kinds of definitions that people have for a Christian and descriptions that they have for a Christian, And all of these, you would find some people, of all the things I mentioned and many more that I didn't, you would find some people who would think of a Christian in in those terms. But let's listen again to what Jesus says and notice how he describes a Christian. And even that term, of course, is rarely used in the Bible and had not even been used at the time Christ made this prayer. But it does give the most common name for a follower of Jesus Christ, as we use it in our day. And so let's let's look at how Jesus describes a Christian. And I read again verse 6. He says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And I will give you the four statements that I think summarize Christ's description of a Christian, and they are, number one, those who first belonged to the Father, number two, those who were given to the Son, number three, those to whom the Son manifested the Father's name, and number four, those who have kept the Father's word. Now, the first one we have spent quite a bit of time on in previous broadcasts, and so I don't want to go back to that one except just to remind you that the first The first uh, description that Christ gives of a Christian is that he is one who first belonged to the Father. I have manifest your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. They were yours. They first belonged to the Father. And that, of course, you you can't really make sense of that statement if you are not willing to link it to what the Bible teaches about God choosing his people, the doctrine of election. But we go on. I've already spent quite a bit of time on that on previous broadcasts. And so we go on to the second description, which is, they were those who were given to the Son. Again, listen to the language. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. 
and they have kept your word. Those who were given to the Son, they belong to the Father, first of all, and the Father gave them to the Son. Now, we don't normally think in terms like that, but we should. Because the Bible, I started to say the Bible encourages us to. I would say the Bible requires us to. When the Bible teaches something, we are required to believe it, aren't we? Isn't that one of the definitions of a Christian, is somebody who believes the Bible, who believes that what it says is true, who believes what it says, whether he understands it or not? Isn't that a good definition, a good description of a Christian? I think so. And if you call yourself a Christian, that's what I think at times at least you claim is true of you, that the reason you're a Christian is because you believe what the Bible says. Whatever the Bible says is so. As, as contrasted to those who may be in the same family, may be in the same community, may be in the same workplace, who don't believe the Bible. They are aware of the Bible, maybe were reared in a context of church and, and Bible exposure. I started to say Bible teaching, but Again, depending on what kind of church they grew up in, some would have focused on, would have emphasized Bible teaching, others would not. They would have treated the Bible lightly. It's not that they would ignore it totally or, or say that it has nothing to do with the Christian religion, because, of course, that would be so far-fetched as to be recognized immediately as nonsensical, but... It is true that many people give lip service to the Bible, but they don't really spend much time trying to understand what it says, to know and understand what it says. And unfortunately, that's true of some churches. And if, if, if you're talking to someone who grew up in a church like that, he probably has a concept of, of um, well, I started to say loyalty to the Bible. He has a concept that a Christian is one who is loyal to the Bible, whether he considers himself a Christian at this point in time or not. If he still considers himself a Christian, then he probably still considers that he has some kind of loyalty to the Bible, whether he really knows what it says or not. But he doesn't have a clear concept of many of the things that the Bible teaches, and this is one of them. This idea that there were people who belonged to the Father, and he gave them to his Son. When's the last time you heard anyone talking like that? But this is a description of a Christian, of those who are the people of God. And I read it again. Jesus saying to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now, I would suggest that this bestowment of the elect people, that's what we talked about last week, the bestowment of these elect people who belonged first to the Father, they were bestowed to the Son in a Trinitarian agreement. And I go back to verse 2. Back, let, let's start at the beginning of the, of the prayer, verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Do you 
there's that same idea. It already came up in Christ's petition for himself. As you, Father, have given him, that is the Son, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Do you, do you hear this, this language of agreement here? The Father has given a people to the Son, and the Son has agreed that he's going to give eternal life to all the people that the Father has given him. Again, verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. The Father gives a definite people, a, a certain people, a defined people, a known people to the Son, and the Son has agreed that he will give eternal life to all those that the Father gives to him. And so those who were given to the Son were given in a Trinitarian agreement. And, of course, what I looked at in verse 2 only involves, the language only involves the Father and the Son. So you might say, well, where's the, where's the Trinity? Where's the Spirit in that? And he's not in that particular statement. <coughs> but as we study the Bible, we know that he's a vital part of all of this. The Father chose his people. The Son redeemed his people. He, he died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for those whom the Father gave to him. <clears throat> but the Holy Spirit must convict them of sin. He must grant them believing faith. He must draw them to the Father. So he's got a vital role in this. So it is, in fact, a Trinitarian work. And therefore, since it is traced back to eternity past and something that was going on between the Father and the Son, we include the Spirit, we realize that the work of salvation involves all three members of the triune Godhead. They all are, I think we could safely say, all are involved in the planning, though it's a clear that the Father takes a lead in this. It's so many interesting things. I'm, I'm ha having to be careful. I'm, I'm tempted to get sidetracked, but there's so many interesting things that are suggested here. And that is, even though there are three persons in the Trinity, and all of them are God, and all of them are co-equal, they all have the same attributes, they all, there's one God in three persons, nevertheless, we can see the different roles that each one takes. And again, undoubtedly, this is by common agreement, but the Father is the chief administrator, the Son is the Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit is the one who grants life, who, who works life in, in the lives of those that the Father gave to the Son and, for, and that the Son agreed to give eternal life to, and he died to effect what was necessary, that that people could be justified before a holy God. But we see the Father in this role of administrator, and we do see the Father in the role of leader. So there, there's one sense in which the Trinity is co-equal, but there's another sense in which there is there are administrative roles for the work of redemption. Although they each have have equal power and authority, we do see the Father taking the lead. He chose these people. They belong to him. He determined to give them to the Son, but no doubt they discussed all of this. I mean, I, I can't... I'm only imagining. None of us have been in heaven. No one was there when, 
when all of this was agreed upon. But it would it would seem to me, at least in human terms, I can only think of God in, in a way that I'm able to think of anything because I am a human being, and so I have to think in terms of, of human activities and human realities. And so I, I think in terms of the Father taking the lead and discussing this with the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the Father says, I think this would be the way to do it, and the Son says, I, I agree, and I will gladly uh, take, take my part of what you are suggesting here, that, that uh, you will give a people to the Son, and the Son will give himself for those people, and the Holy Spirit speaks up and says, and yes, I will do the work, the regenerating work to, to, to draw these people to a saving knowledge of Christ and whatever is necessary for them to be able to do that. And so we see that even though they are all equal, they all have a different role, and the Father takes a lead. Now, there are a lot of applications to this. I, I didn't intend to get into all of this today, but I think it's important, or at least worthwhile, that I do this. We have in our day an argument about um, the roles of men and women and does the Bible specify a role for men that is different from women and so forth? And, and you know how, how the world thinks about that. But by and large, the world says, no, uh, you can't have if – you, if you make the – say in a marriage, if you make the husband the leader, as the Bible seems to indicate, <laughs> as they would say, seems to indicate, I, I would say the Bible is very clear about this. But if you make the husband the leader – and the wife being submissive to her husband, as the Bible teaches, then what you've done is made the wife inferior to her husband. You can't have that. You can't have that. You've, you've got, the among those who claim to be Christians, these two positions are defined as egalitarian or complementarian. And those who believe, as I do, that the Bible is clear, that the God has given a leadership responsibility to the husband. I know a lot of husbands who wish he hadn't, but he has and, has. and if we're going to be obedient Christians, submissive to what the Word of God says, then we have to take that responsibility, men. We can't say, nah, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not cut up for that. I don't want to do that. I won't take that role. Well, that's not really an option, is it? If you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to be loyal to the Bible, whatever it says. And it says husbands are to take the lead and wives are to submit to their husbands. And complementarians take the position that that is what the Bible teaches, but it doesn't teach inferiority. It teaches a complementary partnership. But there is a leader in the partnership. You have two people who are equal in, in worth, equal in abilities, equal in intelligence, equal in, in all of these ways. It, it, it doesn't, the fact that the husband is given a leading role doesn't, doesn't mean, it doesn't teach, it doesn't imply to anyone who thinks this through that there's any inferiority to the wife. It just means that God has assigned different roles. So it's, it's a complementary situation God has assigned the roles, and each one takes the role that God has given to them, and they complement each other. And it works well, because that's the way God designed it. And whenever you do things the way God designed, 
They work well because he made us. <laughs> he designed us. He designed the human race. He designed the human family. And then the other side, the egalitarians, basically say, no, it can't be that way because that, to, to, to teach that the woman must be submissive to her husband means that she's not equal. And so because we believe in equality, then we have to dis- somehow erase that concept. Yes, the Bible seems to teach that, but... And here we go. Uh, in Christ, there's neither male nor female and so forth. And those verses mean that the verses about husband leading his wife and the wife submitting to the husband are, are not, not, don't mean what they think, what they seem to mean. And it's, a, it's the age-old problem. I see it all the time in, in so many different areas of taking general statements that are not fully defined and Put, giving them your own definition and then using them to cancel out other statements that are clear. Yes, in Christ there's no male nor female, rich nor poor, bond nor free, etc., etc., Jew nor Gentile. But what does that mean? Well, it means that all have equal standing in Christ as believers in Christ, but it doesn't mean that every person in that relationship has the same authority in human society to take the bond and the free. What is the bond? A slave. What is the free? Not one who's not a slave, and in many cases, that would certainly include the, the slave owner. Or, take away the issue of slavery for a moment, does the Bible endorse slavery. I'm not going to necessarily get into that right now, but to say that it doesn't it doesn't erase it automatically, but I think if if you follow what the Bible teaches and take what it says to its logical conclusion, you pretty much have to come to the conclusion that slavery is not tenable. Just the the simple statement to love your neighbor as yourself, as much as you love yourself, and to the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and just ask the question, would you be as happy to be a slave as to be a slave owner? Or is there some something, and it, it, what it always boils down to is some concept that, well, I'm superior to a slave because, I, in other words, I have a, a, a position of, of, uh, of superiority, that makes it justifiable for me to own slaves and for the slaves to be owned by me. But no, I wouldn't be as equally happy to be a slave as to be a master. <laughs> Not on your life. I cannot envision myself in that position. Well, then how do you how do you how are you going to work out this this principle of of treating others as you would have them treat you? and loving others as much as you love yourself. How does that apply to a slave? But having said all of that, there are clear statements in the Bible, for example, that those who have a, um, a management position in the workplace are to be obeyed. 
and those who who work for them, whether we're talking about slaves or freemen, they are to submit. Does that mean that the manager is is more valuable? Is it has has more worth intrinsically before Christ in Christ than the other? No, 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 no. There's an equality in Christ, there's an equality of worth, there's an equality of, of the worth of the eternal soul, but that does not erase these distinctions that belong to human society for it to work and function properly. It all breaks apart when you just scatter those things to the wind and say there is no such thing as human authority. Nobody has a right to command somebody else. But of course, even the people who object to the husband-wife relationship aren't usually willing to go that far. They know that would be absolute anarchy. Now, how did I get onto all of that? <laughs> in this concept of the Trinitarian agreement in which it's clear that the father has the administrative role. The fact that the father takes the first step, the father has the first place, that these belong first to the father and then they're given to the son, does that mean, listen to me now, does that mean that the son is inferior to the father? Oh, no. You say that would destroy what the Bible teaches about the deity of Christ and in his deity being equal to the father in every way. He has the same power as the Father. He has the same omniscience as the Father, the same knowledge. Everything, every attribute that the Father has, the Son has it and has it in equal measure. There's no inferiority here, and the same was true of the Holy Spirit. There's no inferiority here, and yet we are we read things like that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father. So the Father takes the lead. The Father takes a an administrative role. He's in the, he's the administrator. We might even substitute the word boss and we wouldn't be far off the target here. He sends the Son. He sends the Spirit. Does that mean that he's superior to them? No, not in the, the essence of who he is, not in the value that you place upon him, but yes, in this administrative role of this working relationship to accomplish the work of redemption, he takes the lead. The son follows his lead and does his father's will. The Holy Spirit takes his instructions and carries them out. So, back to the husband-wife relationship. If it is true, and surely you would agree that it is true, if it is true that God the Son is not inferior to the Father in any respect, and that, but therefore his obedience to the Father and his, his following the leadership of the Father does not make him inferior in any way, he, then it, it stands to reason that the wife taking her God-given role in marriage does not make her inferior to her husband. If it seems that way to you, then you have to adjust your thinking so that, not, so that you realize it's not that way, even if it seems that way. Because it's clear that 
It's not that the Son is inferior to the Father, even though there are certain statements that might make it seem that way. But we cannot think that way. We cannot concede that possibility. We cannot accept that line of reasoning that the Father, the Son is inferior to the Father and the Holy Spirit is inferior to the Father and maybe inferior to the Son as well. We don't have that taught. We, we, we have the teaching that, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-equal in every way imaginable, and yet there is this, this uh, relationship and activity that shows a leader and followers. Well, I have to go. We'll take it up. We'll continue it next week. Join me then. Until then, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.